بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا ونبينا ومولانا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته All praise and thanks be to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Choices, peace, blessings and salutations upon our master and exemplar Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam Ahlan wa sahlan wa marhaban bikum Alhamdulillah, thumma alhamdulillah, we thank Allah Ta'ala for making us from among the living, from among the Ummah of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and for granting us our health. And we take this opportunity to make dua for all of those who are suffering from any form of illness or disease, that Allah Ta'ala alleviate your pain and your suffering and grant you complete shifa. And for all of those who are suffering from pain uh, of any sort, whether that be emotional, psychological, and physical, we ask that Allah Ta'ala remove your pain and grant you ease and relief for all of the, our brothers and sisters who have passed on and left this world. We pray that Allah Azza wa Jal grants them Jannatul Firdaus and make the Qubur, uh, the graves, gardens of paradise. Amin Ya Rabbal Alameen. I am uh, honored to host this panel once again. It is an information session on uh, COVID-19 vaccines. I welcome all of our viewers and our listeners on VOC 91.3 Facebook page, as well as the Isnad Academy uh, YouTube channel and Facebook page, among other platforms as well, Abu Tazkiyah as well. Ahlan wa sahlan bikum. I know some people are still uh, glued to the screens for the rugby at this moment. There's no problem with that. Uh, but do join us as soon as you can, inshallah. Share, uh, share the information, share the link with your family, friends, and loved ones so that they may benefit as well. Uh, I'm going to first and foremost welcome all of the panelists, all of the guests this evening, and thereafter, uh, after this brief introduction by each of them, and why they are on this panel, uh, panel, um, then we are going to speak a bit about the topic and what it is that we are going to do uh, tonight. So first and foremost, in no particular order, of course, uh, with me in studio, we have Maulana Dr. Yusuf Patel. Ahlan wa sahlan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to our viewers and to my respected panelists uh, Alhamdulillah, always good to be here and to be involved in such a noble uh, program um, and look, I'm not going to uh, to belabor our time here but uh, the reason why I felt that this program was necessary or to be part of this program was to uh, shed light and to provide some clarity on the misinformation uh, that has been disseminating out within society and within our public spaces with regards to COVID-19 and with regards to uh, the vaccine. So as a clinician, someone involved in hospital and someone who has a background in Islamic studies, I felt that it would be uh, good and productive if um, I joined the panel. Jazakumullah khairan, Maulana Dr. Yusuf Patel. And again, as I said, in no particular order, I'm going to bring them up as I see them on the screen. Uh, Dr. Shamim Jamdulay, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. And all of our panelists will just start from him and then move around the screen, inshallah ta'ala. Bismillah. Dr. Shamim, Assalamu alaikum. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh, Maulana. Uh, again, thank you for the opportunity to shed some light and uh, some uh, facts that are peer-reviewed and checked and real uh, in uh, in the in the environment of misinformation that we're living in. I think it's very important that us as professionals in our discipline uh, bring to light this information and, uh, and, and, and also, and more importantly, for people who have a genuine fear and of, 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 
of of the vaccination rollout that's happening right now and uh, you know in the in the in the storm of misinformation it's important to establish the facts and uh, uh for this opportunity and then uh, the next in line we have dr yasmin muqaddam bray ahlan wa sahlan bikum assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah assalamu alaykum wa alaykum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh shukran so much um for including me I uh, feel a bit overwhelmed. I'm the only one with a scarf on tonight here on this panel. Um, Alhamdulillah. So basically... And nobody's going to mention anything about that <laughs> while we accidentally unmuted. I think you're safe oh. on this panel, inshallah. <laughs> okay, Alhamdulillah. Um, okay, so basically, can you hear me? Yes, Bismillah. Okay, yeah, so I'm a private GP. Um, I work in private practice and Alhamdulillah, I've been um, seeing patients from the start of the pandemic last year. I think we're about 20 months in now um, and I've been basically working in primary care, managing uh, patients, uh, diagnosing, testing, and then having to deal with the impact of the virus um, with uh, sort of as a pra family practitioner with my patients, but then uh, um, very recently also on the personal front uh, with um, um, family members being um, affected by uh, by COVID and myself as well being affected by COVID-19 as well. So just to bring some light into what impact this virus has actually had on a very basic level, um, inshallah, I hope to make a beneficial contribution. Jazakum khairan and great to have you on the panel. And then Dr. Zamir Bray, you just got Zamir over there. Let's give him the screen for a moment. Dr. Zamir, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi and uh, the panelists. Shukran so much for the opportunity. Uh, really looking forward to this evening's session. Uh, inshallah, may Allah guide us to be of benefit uh, to the community from which we come. Um, and uh, my role is. I serve as an advisor to government in different roles. I've been working with uh, Dr. Karim closely uh, last year on the COVID response in the Western Cape. Um, and this year, I'm uh, supporting the National Department of Health uh, in their vaccination program and uh, look, look forward to the questions uh, and concerns raised by the listeners here this evening so we can help them as best as possible, inshallah. Dr. Zamir, and it's good to have you with us once again. And then, of course, we have Dr. Sadiq Karim. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh, Dr. Sadiq. Walaikum salam warahmatullahi wabarakatuh to yourself, uh, to the panelists, and to the listeners. I'm the Chief of Operations, Western Cape Department of Health, and I think this session is really quite important to help shed some light on some of the misinformation that is, uh, you know, out there in the community. So, shukran for that. Ahlan wa sahlan, sweet and short, mashallah. And then, of course, the one and the only Dr. Salim Parker. I don't know if, if it's befitting, you know, to, to give Dr. Salim an opportunity to introduce himself. I feel that's a bit redundant. We all know him and love him. He's our Hajj doctor. He's our community doctor. He's going to tell you more about himself, inshallah. Faletafadda mashkura. Shukran once again for the uh, opportunity to join this program. Um, why are we doing this? Let's just think back two days ago or three days ago when the Voice of the Cape on their Facebook page, page said they had never had so many Janaza notices as they've had on that particular day, mostly due to COVID. It's still happening, and I think we're still in for a tough ride in, for the next few weeks. So I think even if one person benefits, it would have been a project worthwhile embarking on. I'm a GP in Elsie's River and also do quite a lot of uh, travel-related work. 
شكرا عفوا جزاكم الله خيرا and uh, شكرا to the rest of the panelists as well so as for the topic tonight inshallah this is a question and answers information session this is not pro-vax anti-vax this is not take the vaccine no matter what you must take the vaccine this is not shoving information down people's throats this is not a debate so none of the rules of any of the aforementioned type of uh, engagements are going to apply here this is simply a group of experts in their fields coming together to answer some pertinent questions that we've gathered uh, through our consultations with doctors and what they felt were the most frequently asked questions uh, pertaining to the vaccine specifically and related matters uh, right now. So we have compiled these questions. We've, I'm sitting here with a list of 21 questions, subhanAllah. We are uh, somewhat doubtful that we'll even make it through our own questions because they are really important questions. We have set certain limitations for ourselves as far as time per question, etc. And uh, this obviously means that there will probably not be uh, much time to take questions from viewers and listeners specifically. We are hoping that your questions will be covered within the questions that we've compiled. That said, this is not, uh, this is not to dissuade you from posting your questions. You may post questions, you may post comments, as long as you are uh, not rude, inshallah, and you, you know you follow the decorum of a Muslim and the etiquette of uh, our dialogue as Muslims, then no problem. We will not permit any sort of personal ad hominem attacks. We will not permit any form of posting of links or other websites, etc. Uh, this is simply an information session for those who genuinely have questions and these questions need answers. It's not that the information is not out there, but you know what we've seen so far is that when the information comes from our own, our own children, our own mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, our own GPs, our own experts in our own community, then we feel a sense of uh, trust and safety because just as we wouldn't wish bad for others, these brothers and sisters of ours, whom we call doctors, they wouldn't wish bad upon us, uh, upon ourselves and upon themselves and their families, subhanAllah. So for that reason, uh, we are hosting a program of this nature. Of course, there's one panelist uh, who is sorely missed and not present here, who would have been uh, based on past experience, and that's uh, our late teacher and the Mufti of the Muslim Judicial Council, uh, Mufti Muhammad Taha Karan. We pray that Allah Ta'ala grant him and all deceased a high place in Jannah and grant them ease in their, in their qabr. And I'm mentioning this specifically because my teacher exerted himself in the last years of his life, the last one or two years of his life, pertaining to this topic more than any other topic. Uh, the issue of how to deal with the pandemic, how to deal with the situations presented by the pandemic and that we found ourselves in. And till the very end, subhanAllah, some of the last official writing that we have of his uh, happens to be in relation to this topic. And this is not because he had nothing better to do. Uh, the list of demands were great, but this topic uh, took priority. And for that reason, we, we ask that Allah Ta'ala accept his uh, endeavors and grant him through these endeavors and through the good that he intended thereby uh, a high place in Jannah. Ameen, Ya Rabbil Alameen. So, uh, Bismillah, we will now commence, inshallah Ta'ala. The first question is for uh, Dr. Salim Parker. And um, I will bring him up on screen, inshallah, Dr. Salim Parker. And the question is a simple request to give us some updates on the current COVID-19 stats in the Western Cape. 
Bismillah, Doc. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. You know, let's first look at the global picture and 200 million cases later tells us that this is a real pandemic. 4.2 million deaths over the last 20 months tells us that this is something to be taken seriously and that it is real. So when you come to South Africa, we've had over 2.4 million cases already. We've had, we're approaching 75,000 deaths confirmed once. There are still debatable deaths that might have been due to COVID, might not be, but these are the documented ones in South Africa. So we're sitting with a real problem as far as COVID-19 is concerned. Now, yes, in South Africa, the numbers are declining from a peak of about 28, 30,000 a day about a few weeks ago. We're sitting at about 10, 11,000 cases a day. So the numbers in South Africa in total is coming down. But that doesn't really give a real picture of what's happening in the Western Cape. Because we in the Western Cape, the pandemic and the third wave that we're experiencing now started later than that in the Gauteng. Gauteng experienced it initially. The Western Cape is now um, reaching its peak. I'm not certain, and the government departments are not actually certain whether it is speaking. It seems to be like that. But the number that we are seeing for the last two days of 4,000 plus cases per day is really a worrying trend. And the reason for that is we'll have 4,000 cases today, but those people, are 10% of them are going to need hospitalization in about a week's time. And a couple of days later, they're going to start dying. So the numbers uh, first come as a number of cases then a week later it starts as uh, hospitalizations and then after that people start dying already our hospitals are full already we know that um, the number of janazas like i've already mentioned in the muslim community but in the wider community as well 100 deaths due to COVID a day currently in the western cape tells us that we're in the midst of the real third wave and we cannot let our guards down so it is still time for us to take cognizance of the fact that we are really going to be seeing more hospitalizations, we're going to be seeing more deaths, and we must be prepared for that and hopefully try to uh, mitigate the potential worsening of those, of those uh, of that old scenario. So that's just in a nutshell is what's happening worldwide, countrywide, as well as locally in the Western Cape. Dr. Sanim. We appreciate your input on, uh, in that regard. Uh, the next question is for Dr. Sadiq. Dr. Sadiq Karim, uh, could you give us a, a brief update on the vaccine rollout, the program uh, in the Western Cape specifically? How is that progressing? When can we expect uh, the vaccine to be rolling out to the under 35 category and so forth? Bismillah. So let me just maybe just on the last question with Dr. Parker, just to add, in addition to the 100 over 100 deaths daily, we also have around 340 hospital admissions on a daily basis. So, I mean, this pandemic is still very real, and I think people must just remember that as we have the conversation about vaccines. So, with regard to vaccine rollout and vaccine progress. As everybody knows, we have begun the 35 plus uh, more recently on the on the first, and we already have vaccinated 1.3 million people in the Western Cape. So Alhamdulillah, it's going actually very well. The rollout continues. We have public and private sites in the province. We just received on Friday additional doses of the vaccine. So for the next couple of weeks, our vaccine supply line is also looking quite good. I think having having said that, I think one of the issues that we obviously, and it will be come up later in the course of the conversation, I'm sure, is the number of people registering. 
So I think there's still quite a bit of work that we would like to do in this area. If I look at the registrations, we currently have over 1.2 million people who have registered. But if one breaks that down, there are some areas where the registrations are still very low. Two of those areas in the metropole, for example, where a number of people who would be on the show or, or who would hail from are in the Clipfontein sub-district and also in the Mitchell's Plain sub-district. So if one looks at the overall registration in those two sub-districts, it's only sitting at 25%. In other words, 25% of eligible people are registered in those areas. And, and I think that might have a lot to do with the vaccine hesitancy and also the kind of questions that inshallah we'll hope to address during the course um, of this program. So in summary, the vaccine program at the moment is going very well. Um, we have sufficient supply of doses. We also started recently as people would have seen vaccinating the homeless and other other hard to get um, populations. And we're pushing quite hard on the vaccine rollout in the province, Shukran. Jazakumullah khairan, uh, Dr. Sadiq. We really appreciate your input in this regard. And we'll speak to you uh, a little later, inshallah. Barakallah fiqh. The next question is for Dr. Yasmin. Dr. Yasmin Mukaddam, the uh, Rose Among the Thorns tonight. Alhamdulillah, <laughs> good to have you on board. Um, I do believe that you are still recovering from COVID and uh, your family was affected as well. Could you give us a brief uh, synopsis of your experience, your family's experience, and in fact, in general, you know, I mean, here tonight we're going to be speaking about stats and we're going to be speaking about numbers and so on in all likelihood. And unfortunately, this is the, the cold way, you know, that these <laughs> things are usually approached in. But the reality on the ground is that people are dying. Um, in yeah. the week past, I received a message um, that I didn't verify, but it was it was uh, publicly spread as well as from the Voice of the Cape that the Voice of the Cape had 25 janazas. I didn't actually listen to the janazah announcements on that day, but they said 25, and that was like uh, apparently a record um, for Cape Town. And each person is, of course, somebody's loved one. And we've lost one of our panelists, uh, Mufti Taha Karan, to this uh, deadful uh, disease, and so many others, and people have been affected. Can you give us uh, an understanding of this before we move into all the stats and numbers further? Jazakumullah khairan. Shukran so much. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. You know, we just ask Allah to guide us with whatever we say and whatever we do. As, as medical practitioners, we have this amana that we need to try and utmostly always um, promote the preservation of life. And within that, we hope that the decisions that we make and the advice we give will actually um, fulfill that intention. So basically, you know, just the impact, I think we're really seeing the impact of this um, this pandemic now um, within this third wave now. So, um, you know, if I could just give an example of one of my very dear patients, they've been my patient for the last um, 15 years. I've seen the babies being born and, and grow up and so on. So the husband and the wife developed COVID about a month ago. The husband is in his early 50s and the wife is, um, I don't think she's even 50 yet. Um, the husband then, as Salim said, a week later ended up um, in hospital. Um, and then subsequent to that, on a ventilator. At that time when he was being ventilated, his wife phoned me on a Sunday afternoon to say, Doc, I can't breathe, but I can't go to hospital. I have two kids at home and I'm alone with them. These children are age 10 and 8, I think, um, two little girls. And I basically had to try and find a family member in order to get the kids safe, phone an ambulance and pray that she's going to get the space in the hospital. And at that stage, the ambulance had said that most of the hospitals are undivert. 
Um, they did get an, a, a bed for her, but unfortunately, it was not at the same hospital as her husband. So basically, she was then um, uh, put onto high flow oxygen. And in that time when she was in ICU, her husband then dies of COVID. Um, she's in a separate hospital having to hear that her husband died and also to, uh, to basically deal with the grief of not being able to be there for her daughters with the loss of their father. Um, subhanallah. And I just think that, you know, just that one scenario out of so many, many scenarios, so many people facing that uh, exact same um, sort of thing. How traumatizing must that not have been and still is now? Alhamdulillah, she's made it out of hospital. But she just messaged me now to say that her daughters constantly, you know, they're crying, they're traumatized, they uh, they devastated by the loss of their father and also just the whole traumatic event surrounding that death and her hospitalization. And, you know, if you just think about the impact of that, I myself, my father is in hospital with COVID at the moment. Today is day 25 in ICU. That is huge. I mean, just the fact that we cannot see him and he cannot see us and knowing the type of pain that he's going through, the discomfort that he's feeling while he is in hospital. Uh, I cannot explain to you how that impacts my mom who is at home um, waiting for him. Her, she feels as if her life has stopped because her husband is in hospital and she cannot do for him. You know, the impact that it has on my kids and on all of the grandchildren, um, you know, the thought of losing their grandparent. And then myself having succumbed to COVID in that same time that my dad was in hospital, my husband, and then uh, subsequently uh, all of my kids as well. So, you know, you just, uh, what happened there is, is that uh, what you, you find is that with COVID, one person gets infected and because this Delta wave, uh, this Delta variant is so contagious, you find that as much as you want to isolate and you try your best, everybody in the house tends to um, become infected. So that means essentially that people can be out of work and um, sort of out uh, in isolation for sometimes up to a month because of a staggered um, infectivity by family members and then having to extend um, your quarantine time, your isolation time and so on. And you can just imagine what that then does to a family who, um, uh, you know, financially, what, what that would do to the family where the father cannot go out and actually um, uh, work and, and provide for the family. Um, other than that, in, uh, apart from the financial implication, the, 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 the isolation and what mental impact that has on the family as a whole, not being able to go out there, children not being able to go to school, I, I myself felt like, you know, in the time that I was so sick, I couldn't sit with my children and actually get their work done. Um, so the loss of school days and school time as well, it's huge. It's absolutely huge, you know. And what I'm seeing a lot in my practice now is, is the mental um, trauma that patients are having to suffer from. Half of the time, most of our time goes into counseling patients. When they get that um, diagnosis, having to hold their hand throughout it, so you're constantly on your phone giving advice, trying to calm people down, helping them medically, trying to keep them out of hospitals, trying to find oxygen. You know, the list is just uh, sort of so long if you think about the impact uh, that it has on, on the household. And then, um, you know, having to then counsel patients when there is a loved one that has actually died or a prolonged stay in hospital. So, you know, the, the devastating effect that this virus has on, on, on family life is, is so huge. And we are probably going to have to deal with that for the next few years to try and mend 
whatever scars have been caused by this virus. And for that reason, you know, it is so important that we try and do our utmost to prevent getting COVID. So by whatever means, whether it is via the vaccine, and Alhamdulillah, I had the vaccine in February, and I am so thankful that I had that vaccine, um, because having uh, um, COVID now, I could feel that, Alhamdulillah, I didn't suffer any complications, and neither did my husband, because of maybe being a little bit strong and having some antibodies on board. So in that way, you know, taking the means in order to prevent um, the severity and the impact of this disease is what I think is so important. Other than just that, also just trying to re-sort of affirm with people to, to really take responsibility, man. You know, so there's so many people out there that still don't believe that COVID is real and go around, walking around, um, not uh, taking the precaution, not isolating when they get the um, when they are in contact with someone in the household, and then going out there and spreading it even further. I, I often say to people, "Are you willing and are you prepared to live with the fact that you could have infected someone and you could have actually caused for someone to end up in hospital and even a death of someone?" So those are real things that we as a community need to really um, think about. And as Muslims, to think that we do not ever want to feel responsible that we could have been the reason why somebody ended up with this virus or even died from it. So I could go on all night, but I know the time is short. So just as a synopsis, that is just a, a summary of, of the impact that it's had so far. Um, may Allah grant uh, yourself and your family complete shifa as well as all of those suffering from COVID and all other illnesses. Of course, we, we know that... Uh, it's not it's not an easy time, subhanAllah. And uh, everybody has lost a loved one or has a loved one who's seriously ill. So we, we are in each other's du'as and that's all that we can do, inshallah ta'ala. And that's a lot. That's not uh, belittling du'a in, in any way because that's our most powerful weapon and Allah knows best. Uh, Dr. Bray, this next question is for you, inshallah ta'ala. How has the vaccine rollout affected other countries and uh, South Africa in terms of stats? like? For example, is, are these statistics showing the efficacy? Are these statistics reflecting that the vaccine is effective? Uh, can you give us some insight on that? Yes, absolutely, Molana. And, you know, just to reiterate the, the very important point you made earlier, I think it's easy for us to talk about the numbers. But these are individuals, these are family members, these are loved ones. Um, it's... It is important for us to look at the numbers, so I'm going to try and do that in, in three minutes, inshallah. So just in terms of the vaccination rollout, uh, this is the largest vaccination program in history. The, the world has already delivered 4.37 billion doses in 180 countries. Based on the current rate of vaccination, we will likely reach 8 billion vaccinations before the end of this year. It could, in fact, be more as the world becomes flush with vaccines, um, particularly our continent of Africa, uh, where, where there has still been constrained supply of vaccines. In terms of South Africa's picture, eight and a half million doses uh, administered and about 6.8 million individuals um, already uh, vaccinated. So. An important question, Molina, you asked, which is what's the impact of vaccines? And uh, some people may have seen this graph, but really just to point out what is this graph telling us? So this is a graph that represents a city in, in, in Canada. 
Um, and what one can see over time, obviously the vaccination programs really only started uh, you know, at the start of this year, particularly in the developed countries. And one can see that the proportion of unvaccinated individuals being admitted to ICU uh, is in fact, due, even in the middle of a third wave, is this red proportion over here. So the bulk of patients being admitted to ICU are in fact unvaccinated. This picture is mirrored by exactly what we are seeing in South Africa too. And I'll show this in a couple of different ways. This particular uh, graph uh, demonstrates the impact of the UK vaccine rollout program on, the, on this axis is the number of days into the wave. So this was the second wave in the earlier part of this year, and this is the, current, the more recent third wave. So this is 40 days, 45 days, and 50 days. The bar on this side demonstrates the deaths per 10 million individuals during the second wave, unvaccinated, and alhamdulillah, during the third wave, we see less than 5%, less than of, of the amount of death that was experienced in the same population, same geography, but in an unvaccinated population. Another way to think about this is, if we take at the peak of an epidemic, the force of transmission or infection around 500 per 100,000 or 5,000 per million. On the left, what I've done is I've demonstrated the number of infections we will get in an unvaccinated population and an, a vaccinated population. More or less, we will get 5,000 infections in the gray. In a million unvaccinated, we will get 750 admissions. Just to say, I, I couldn't do 750 people, but everything here is multiplied by 100 on both sides so that it's equal. And we will get 150 deaths per 1 million unvaccinated. In the 1 million vaccinated population, if we have a vaccine that has a protection of 80% against mild disease, and 90% against severe disease and death, similar to the vaccines being used in this country. Alhamdulillah, we have strong vaccines. We only get 1,000 infections approximately in the gray. We will likely have around 75 admissions and 1.5 deaths, which I have not demonstrated because the scale is multiplied by 100. And so the point is, and I really want to draw your attention to the bottom which is the difference, the vast difference in the amount of people that will die and be hospitalized uh, with, uh, due to uh, being protected from the vaccine. Lastly, some good data that the Department of Health has presented to our public to, to help them understand what this means. Some differentiation in benefit between males and females, but very simply, Vaccinating 83 men over the age of 60 will prevent about one admission, and vaccinating 425 men will prevent one death. This is based on the data, and I've put the references here. Inshallah, if anyone wants to follow up, uh, we, we will be happy to do so. So, Maulana, I will, I will stop there and hand it back to you, inshallah. Jazakumullah khairan, Dr. Bray, that was very insightful. We thank you for your time and for your efforts put it, uh, that you put into this. And the next question is for Dr. Uh, Shamim Jamdule. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Shamim. 
Um, there are many concerns about side effects, right? Uh, I myself was concerned. I mean, uh, it's something to be concerned about. You're taking a new medication. Uh, you're nervous. There's so much information going around, so many reports. Uh, some of the comments were, again, you know, as I said at the beginning, I gave the, the sort of rules and regulations. But some of the comments I left there, even though uh, it's sort of of that type of nature, and it was something that was going around in social media about uh, some hectic side effects that were reported, um, what is claimed on social media. So one doesn't know what to believe and what not to believe. At least that's what the majority uh, is currently facing. So what are some of the side effects, the adverse side effects, and even deaths that have been reported? How do we, uh, how do we make sense of this? What do we, what do we know to be true uh, in relation to this? And then, um, you know, are these really connected to the vaccines as claimed? Then, you know, I know this is a bit of a, uh, a tough one, but objectively now, were the doctors and scientists wrong about safety? Are they now feeling that, you know, they perhaps made uh, some mistakes, they were perhaps too hasty, or are they still adamant that they are in fact safe? Bismillah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, Molana, the short answer to your question is no. Uh, and allow me to quickly make a distinction between uh, minor uh, side effect and uh, serious adverse event. So, you know, when you take a vaccine or a medication, it is very common that you will experience what we call minor side effects, okay? These are symptoms, for example, with the COVID vaccine, you will develop flu-like symptoms that may come with a headache, that may come with fever, that may come with body pain and lethargy. And these will normally only last between 24 to 48 hours. And these are actually good to have because it is an indication that the vaccine is actually working and is triggering something in your immune system. This is producing some form of inflammation. That is a sign that the vaccine is working. And people will have this side effect and will experience this side effect to a, a, a varying degree. Some of them, will, most, of pe most people will have them mild and some people will have them like to moderate effect. Uh, but the, the uncommon and the serious side effects are the one that should always be reported. And these are generally known as serious adverse events. And those are the ones that require medical attention or even admission in hospital. And in general, health authorities watch out for adverse events that have a proven association or a link with immunization, but also for other adverse events that may theoretically occur, but have not yet been observed. So, I am basing my report on clinical trial data at different phases, safety and efficacy, and also, and more importantly, on the massive number of people now that we can have reports from uh, who have received a vaccine globally around the world. So we know that uh, there are different forms of adverse events, serious adverse events that are being reported right now. I'm going to touch uh, on like the most uh, frequent one. So we have anaphylaxis, which is generally induced uh, uh, as an allergy to one of the components of the vaccine, but not the main ingredient. Uh, and generally, uh, this is why we actually have a waiting period for everybody who takes the vaccine. Generally, it's 15 minutes of observation uh, for people who don't have any history of allergy or anaphylaxis to medication and, and vaccine. And it is a bit longer, 30 to 40 minutes or 45 minutes to an hour for people who have experienced that before, depending on the setting. And right now, uh, 
I am going to give you the global statistics that are out and what are some of the adverse events that are reported with some of the vaccine in use. Uh, and, and one of the doctors could probably later touch on the statistics that we have reported in South Africa. So for the mRNA vaccine, which is Pfizer that is being used in South Africa, uh, for every million vaccinated individuals, there have been reports of 12.6 cases of uh, an inflammation of the heart that is either myocarditis, which is uh, an inflammation of the heart muscle, or pericarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart lining. Uh, and for the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca vaccine, and I'm talking about AstraZeneca because we know uh, from the minister's declaration yesterday that they are considering uh, uh, getting approval for AstraZeneca for use in South Africa as well. These are the viral vector vaccine. There have been reports of Guillain-Barré uh, syndrome that have been triggered. Uh, those are like very few. Those are 1.2 per million vaccinated individuals for those two vaccines. And there have been reports of blood clots. And these have been uh, 8.1 uh, cases of blood clots that have been investigated. I'm not talking about linked now. I'm talking about investigated for every million people who have received this vaccine. And when you put that in perspective, we know that COVID has a death rate and a fatality of around 1% for the number for the people uh, who get infected with the virus. So this means for every million people who get COVID, 10,000 of them will die. So now compare this to the risk, which have not even been proven yet, of around 12.6 cases for the Pfizer vaccine and 8.1 cases for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So, no, I don't think that we were wrong in our assertion that the vaccine uh, will, cause, uh, will, will, will not cause uh, any form of uh, serious adverse event. Uh, and there are uh, different platforms right now across different countries. Even in South Africa, for example, SAPRA has uh, made available now an app that's called MedSafety Application. Uh, which can be downloaded on uh, the on the on the Google Play Store and the App Store for for, for the iPhone users, uh, and 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 we also have a case report or case information form that can be downloaded on the NICD website, uh, where people can report uh, any form of serious adverse event that they have uh, uh, encountered, and these are thoroughly investigated afterwards. I was on mute there. Sorry about that. Barakallahu feekum, Dr. Shamim Jamjale, for commenting, for commenting on the uh, side effects and also how people can report them. And I will share those details. Um, in fact, I'll share them right now, and people can then see uh, for themselves. This is the app that uh, Dr. Shamim was referring to. Um, Obviously, you could just pause the video or get this afterwards, but he did say it was on the Google Play Store. So there are um, ways and means of reporting adverse events. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Jazakumullah khairan again, uh, Dr. Shamim Jamdulay. The next question is for um, V. Molina, doctor in studio, uh, a good colleague and, and uh, um, a good doctor, mashallah. And we hope and pray that Allah grants you a long life and preservation to continue the good work that you do. We ask uh, Dr. Yusuf Patel, how has the third wave, uh, in other words, you know, to be more specific, the Delta variant manifested itself based on uh, his experience 
in hospital. So in other words, has he seen a difference really from the second wave, the first wave, and now, of course, the third wave? Uh, Bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Uh, shukran, Maulana, for that. Um, so just uh, not to, 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 to go into too many discussions, but to answer the question, um, I work in various emergency units uh, within the Western Cape, uh, and arguably I work within a hospital chain uh, that sees probably the most amount of patients in the emergency rooms, and I have a background in emergency medicine, a postgraduate degree. So over the past uh, seven to eight years, I've been working in the emergency rooms. And since COVID um, emerged within South Africa during the first two waves, and now with our third wave, there's definitely been a clinical increase of patients coming through particularly within the waves. Um, we discussed uh, our experiences with regards to the first wave and the second wave and um, how it was a novel experience for many of us to cope with the stress and the fact that so many patients were coming in. But I think with this current third wave, especially over the past month, um, you could even extend it to, to, to five weeks, five to six weeks, we've seen an increase in the amount of patients coming through to the emergency room that have been severely ill. They've been hypoxic, presenting with pneumonias on the x-rays. And much of this is attributed to the fact um, that the Delta variant, the current variant that is spreading around the world, and particularly in South Africa, is more severe um, compared to the previous variants. So we've definitely seen many patients come through. What is concerning to me is the fact that the hospitals are really struggling. And as I said, I work in plus minus about uh, four to five different emergency rooms in the various hospitals and each of these emergency rooms over the past four to five weeks have been inundated inundated with patients presenting with a specific clinical syndrome of hypoxia and severe respiratory disease now many people will say you know this is just the flu this could be other diseases that are being misdiagnosed or whatever else but the reality is that we as the clinicians at the hospital are seeing this and therefore i think we have uh, the respectful right to be able to share our experiences and our observations to uh, the public my, my my message to everyone out there is that we need to take this current wave extremely seriously people are struggling to be seen within the emergency rooms because the icus are completely full and the wards um, are full as well. Many of the other wards within the hospitals, which were used for patients uh, that were coming out of elective surgeries, have now been converted into uh, more stable COVID wards. So patients who perhaps just need basic nasal prong oxygen are being placed in those wards. So now you can imagine the domino effect that it's having on the healthcare system, that many elective procedures that need to take place are not being able to take place. And what this does ultimately, when the full chain uh, within the hospital is full and the resources are limited, that means that patients that are presenting to the emergency room, the first place of contact, right, remain in the emergency room, critically ill, waiting for beds in the hospital, to receive the, the necessary medication and intervention. And then what that does is that patients that must still be seen, that have probably been seen by the GPs or that are critically ill uh, at home and that have come in, they end up waiting within 
the emergency rooms. And, uh, you know, this is not an exaggeration from my side, and I'm sure many of my colleagues, specifically on this panel, and those perhaps listening out there, and those that are working, can agree with me in saying that we've had patients wait more than 10 to 15 hours with suspected COVID or confirmed COVID, critically ill, waiting to be seen by us in the emergency rooms, not because we're complacent, not because we're lazy, not because we don't want to see them, just that we don't have any place or resources to see them within the hospital to provide them with the care that they need. And what's an interesting point that I just want to share, uh, just to, 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 to end off, is that many of these cases that I've seen personally and that my colleagues have seen are patients who are not vaccinated. Right? There have been a couple of patients that have come in that have received maybe one vaccination within a period of a week. Right, So obviously that did not confer upon them enough immunity in order to perhaps battle the disease. But most of the patients, the majority of them that we have seen and are currently seeing are those who have not been vaccinated. Right, And um, I think that's an important point. Uh, uh, the various panelists before me have obviously given the stats. But just from a clinical uh, perspective, I want to share with the audience out there that we are seeing many people that have not been vaccinated or have been partially vaccinated come in. And I think that's something that uh, that we need to take uh, very seriously. I know there was a comment uh, of someone that said that the tests are not accurate. So how do we know that the patients that are coming in actually have COVID? This is all a lie. It's an exaggeration. My simple response to that is that we see a clear symptomatology. We see a clear presentation as I mentioned earlier, of patients who are hypoxic that have various uh, features on the imaging and on their biochemical makeup. And just clinically, we are seeing something very similar across the board with patients coming in. Again, as a doctor, as someone within the medical field, I think we have the humble right to say that we understand what's happening, that we can see that this is just not a flu or some type of moderate disease when the patients present with severe critical disease, but rather that patients are presenting with what we know is COVID-19. It's a reality and it's something that we are all facing. Jazakumullah scholar of islam as well as a doctor mashallah so i hope maybe they can trust you doctor <laughs> i don't know it seems like all doctors are bad guys these days uh wallahu alam right i hope that's not true uh dr salim you've been you've been uh too quiet let me bring you on on board assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh um it's good to have you again uh, dr salim parker doc um there has been and there continues to be fake news going around about um, people dying and adverse reactions and so on. So there are fake stories going around. But there, are, there have also been genuine cases of people experiencing adverse effects. When, when does one, such as yourself, when does a doctor uh, encourage people to go and take the vaccine? Is it that everyone should just go and take? Is every single person who falls within the, you know, the, the respective age categories uh, encouraged to take the vaccine, uh, you know, in Arabic we would say alal itlaq, you know, yeah. across the board. Or are there exceptions to that? Is this a gamble between, okay, should I take my chances with COVID or take my chances with a vaccine? Uh, over to you, Doc. Bismillah. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. You know, again, what we can use only is the knowledge that we have. And just to add on to what Dr. Yusuf uh, mentioned previously about some people saying this is just a bad flu, 
Now, if I, after 30 years as a, as a general practitioner, can't see the difference between flu, which I know people will get over within two to three, two to three to seven days, compared to COVID, where they have clearly a lack of oxygen. We call that hypoxia, which we can measure, which we never found in the 29 years before that. I used to treat patients who had flu. Then you know, the, then I don't have an answer to someone who comes up uh, with with a, with a question as to how you can. Uh, distinguish between them. They are completely different entities. We can measure the one and we can clearly eliminate this is not flu. If we put on the oximeter that everyone is aware of nowadays and measure that someone's oxygen, what we call oxygen saturation levels, is less, for example, at one today of 77. Uh, so you know, that's just to put it in perspective as far as other uh, diseases are concerned. As far as who should be vaccinated, firstly, you know, when the first wave hit us, we were very concerned about those who were most at risk, and we do what we call risk stratification. The elderly were clearly dying way more as a proportion compared to the younger ones. So when the vaccine became available, and we know that it was limited, we had to decide who was the most worthy of taking it and who was the most deserving of taking it. So besides the healthcare personnel, who are faced with the disease on a daily basis and who were vaccinated first in South Africa, the, the most vulnerable happened initially with the first and second wave to be the elderly, especially the elderly with underlying medical conditions such as diabetes, such as high blood pressure, and those uh, who, have, who had other medical conditions such as asthma and so forth. So those were the ones that we targeted initially and that I as a a uh, general practitioner strongly advised to take the vaccine and explain to them, yes, everything in life has a side effect. A patient of mine takes 20 panados. There is a chance that that person who takes a the drug that is very common and very easily available can actually go into liver failure and die. That is a known side effect of paracetamol, panados that we are used to. Now, similarly, a vaccine, no one will ever say that there's no side effects. But what are the benefits? Benefits here for the elderly, for example, was that the percentage of uh, them uh, passing away in ICUs was 70%. So if we can prevent that type of disease, that type of statistics, those were the people we initially wanted to be vaccinated. But we're also now finding that younger people are getting infected, and this is more uh, evident with the Delta variant. So as, the, as more vaccines became available, we advised the younger patients, especially those with uh, who have diseases of lifestyle. I mean, we have plenty of 20, 30-year-olds who are diabetic, plenty of 20 and 30-year-olds who are overweight and have hypertension. Um, they might not qualify for the vaccine yet, but we would encourage them to, do it, to take it when it becomes available. And what are we armed with? We have some information. We do, for example... Uh, for those who had the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine, I mean, a study came out just a couple of days ago where the 300,000 of South Africans were followed up for a month. So we can use those statistics and say, of those 300,000 people who took the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, there were only 50 serious events, of which only one was a serious allergic reaction, which we call anaphylaxis. So we do have information that we can share. And this is different to the information that goes around on social media. For example, we all are aware of the four family members of the opera family uh, that everyone knows about. There's a post was put out that went viral, which said they died after taking the, the jab. 
uh, I mean, the, to, to use the words that was posted. Well, I mean, my partner was involved in, in advising at least one of those family members. He's currently looking after the daughter of one of the deceased. None of those four took the vaccine. All four of them died of COVID-19. One of them was 31 years old. So clearly, there's a difference between fake news, of which that is one example, and well-established published facts, of which the study that I was speaking about now has just been a, is a good example. And what I urge the public to do, especially medical personnel, because it's been medical personnel who actually forwarded such fake news about those four uh, family members who passed away, supposedly due to the vaccine. Please, before you, do, before you forward something, verify it. Whatever we as doctors say, we've got the facts to back us up. So if you receive a post of someone that suddenly passed away two seconds after taking the vaccine, it is theoretically possible, but it is highly unlikely. So if you receive those type of posts, verify it, find the source of it, and then forward it if you feel uh, that it is appropriate to do so. But just don't uh, press the forward button because that is irresponsible, it's un-Islamic, and it is unethical to do acts like that. Jazakumullah khairan, Dr. Salim. Uh, strong words there and words that we can definitely understand because, subhanAllah, even as uh, a student of Islam, this is a serious thing and Muslims are doing this thing on a daily basis, just forwarding whatever they receive. And that is enough to be categorized as a liar when you, you basically convey and transmit everything that is conveyed to you, obviously without verification. So let us be uh, extremely cautious of this. This is a, an irresponsible thing to do for anyone and uh, more so for a believer. The next question is for Dr. Karim. Uh, Dr. Saadi Karim, assalamu alaikum again. Uh, the status of the government hospitals in the Western Cape, you know, are, there, are our hospitals coping? Are there some measures in place to assist them at this present moment? Uh, Bismillah. Yeah, assalamu alaikum again. Yes, no, absolutely. At the moment, we currently have about 3,611 people admitted across our public and private hospitals uh, in the Western Cape. Um, and I think that just shows the seriousness of what the topic that we're talking about and all my co-presenters and the information that we're trying to make sure that the listeners un understand that. So we still have quite a heavy load of patients in our hospitals at the moment. But I can safely say that, yes, we are coping. We have sufficient general, acute general. And we also, if people will remember, we've got what we call what's commonly known as the field hospital beds. Um, that's at Brackengate. We've also got a facility in Sornstown, and we also have a facility out in Mitchell's Plain. We have between those three facilities currently open 528 of those hospital beds. And the average occupancy there is around 78% in those beds. And we still have the capacity to open more. I think, however, having said that, the critical care capacity is at maximum and people will remember we recently had the alcohol regulations that were relaxed and people were moving around a bit more and I mean I think as a direct result of the alcohol regulations having been relaxed the weekend after the relaxation we saw a 100% increase in our trauma admissions and that is directly as a result of the alcohol regulations that had been relaxed but at the moment alhamdulillah we do have the capacity to cope um, and we can still obviously open additional um, field hospital beds, as I said. If I can just add a very quick point also on what Dr. Park and others have, have been saying. The results of that Sisonke trial, in fact, showed, it was recently released, I think, uh, a couple of days ago, actually, um, showed a 91 to 95% efficacy against death 
and it showed a 66% efficacy against hospitalization in the healthcare workers who were part of that study. And people remember the Sisonke trial is when we started with vaccination of healthcare workers using the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And obviously that's effective against both the beta variant which started at the beginning, but also in fact effective against the Delta variant. Um, and the Pfizer vaccine, as um, uh, Shamim was saying, also has an excellent efficacy of around 95%. So both vaccines, as Dr. Bray was also saying, that we have in the country are in fact, in actual fact, very good vaccines. One, one other issue, if I can just, that I've seen in the chat is around pregnant and breastfeeding women. If I can just quickly address that while I'm, while I'm on the floor, um, there was a result of a multinational um, study that was done and published in 2021, which in, in one of our colleagues, Dr. Hunter, has in fact been doing some of the research in that and we based our provincial policy on that, which actually showed that, that I mean, you know, and in terms of the advice, I just want to get the, the exact data, there was certain increase in, in women who did were not vaccinated, or in fact, who had COVID, um, what we call preeclampsia, ICU, and they were in fact, in, as well as general infections. And the mortality was actually 22 times higher in those people, those women who had COVID. So the recommendation generally from the World Health Organization and other international bodies, as well as the, the policy that we're following in the Western Cape is to offer the advice to pregnant and breastfeeding women, but certainly to offer them the vaccine. And I would actually say yeah, absolutely based on the current evidence, I would encourage pregnant and breastfeeding women to in fact take the vaccine. But obviously at the end of the day, it is a woman's choice, but it's our responsibility as professionals to just make sure we impart the facts to people. Uh, Shukran, again, there are other questions about time interval between first and second, it's actually 42 days, um, up to maximum of 12 weeks, but it's 42 days, not before, but 42 days from the, between the first and the, and the second jabs. Uh, Shukran, uh, uh, also in, just in relation to that, since, uh, since you are on doc, the question popped up, uh, do we have enough oxygen? Oxygen is a critical aspect of our treatment plan, as we discovered, in fact, in the Western Cape, because we hit the first the wave first in South Africa. And some early, early work from the colleagues at um, Tigerberg Hospital, in fact, showed the criticality of oxygen. Dr. Schruder and some of his colleagues at Tigerberg Hospital, in fact, who did some of the early work on oxygen. Yes, we have sufficient oxygen in the province. We have a very good working relationship with Afrox, who is the main producer of, of oxygen in the province. At the moment, we're using just about the maximal production capacity of the plant in uh, out in the Western Cape in Kells River. That's about 70, 75 tons. However, what we our arrangement with Afrox is that they tanker in an additional 22 tons on a daily basis into the province. So currently, alhamdulillah, we have sufficient oxygen. We obviously keep an eye on it as a Department of Health for both the public and the private sector. Um, and in the public sector, just by the way, we have about 434 ventilation and high flow nasal oxygen points um, that people can obviously use for treatment of, of our patients. Jazakumullah khairan, Dr. Saadi Karim. Um, we will then pose the next question to Dr. Yasmin. Dr. Yasmin Mukaddam, um, in relation to encouraging patients to take the vaccine, uh, we just had Dr. Dr. Sadi Karim telling us what the, the Western Cape's uh, policy is. And we also, uh, we know what the World Health Organization has, has said about this as well. But now I'm asking you as a Muslim woman and a Muslim woman who's also a doctor, uh, would you also personally recommend the vaccine to all of your patients, including uh, pregnant, breastfeeding women, uh, frail, elderly, etc.? Um, is this not basically saying, look, I am, 
I am backing the vaccine um, and whatever may happen from you taking the vaccine as opposed to you taking a chance with COVID, uh, bismillah. Okay, so bismillah. So basically, Molana, um, um, you know, the thing is, um, obviously it is at the end of the day, individual decision to make. Um, I personally, um, I think um, um, Dr. Sadiq um, mentioned the fact that um, pregnancy in itself, if you get um, COVID and, and you're pregnant, the risk of a severe disease is much higher actually in the pregnant population. And we've experienced with the second wave some devastating events where there were pregnant ladies that ended up on ventilators and then having to have emergency seizures for the baby to be born but mom not to survive. Now, I mean, that in itself is, is, is really devastating. You can just imagine the impact of that. So yes, definitely, there's been no uh, major um, uh, sort of issues with, uh, with the vaccine and pregnancy and lactation. So I do encourage my ladies to, to take it and also to measure up, you know, uh, what are the risks and what are the benefits? And what we see now is that the benefits seem to really outweigh the risks. Um, also with your, 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 your frail and your, your elderly patients, obviously there is a checklist that we go through with patients to make sure that there aren't any obvious um, uh, contraindications to the vaccine. And then also to just warn them about potential side effects so that they do make a um, informed decision. You know, we can't just say blanket, take it and you're not going to have any side effects. So there's a lot of education that goes, uh, goes with um, uh, giving to the patient. But then to encourage them to say that, yeah, again, the benefit does outweigh the risk. And ultimately, in medicine, it's always about that, not just with the vaccine, but with any other treatment that we would um, institute. Similar thing like hormone replacement therapy. There are risks. Yes, you can develop certain um, um, conditions related to taking a hormone tablet. But if the benefit outweighs the risk, then I would say in your instance, take it because it's going to have more benefit for you. And then just to um, quickly highlight one of the comments, a few of the comments on, on the chat were, um, I've had the vaccine and developed COVID a few days later, it was the vaccine that caused it. And just from a personal experience, I can say that, you know, a lot of patients with this Delta variant, you don't feel this virus coming on. It's like you fi find today and tomorrow you've got uh, you infected. So a lot of the people that have gone to vaccines were actually already in the infective stage of COVID and the symptoms only come out a day or two later. So people may be thinking that it was the vaccine that gave them COVID, but it's not actually that. It's just that we are in a wave at the moment and people are so um, easily exposed. So the chance of you actually having COVID when you've gone for your jab is there and not specifically because the vaccine caused it. So just in, uh, on the side of caution for patients to if they're having any sort of symptoms or if they have had a family member that has just tested positive or if they were exposed to first isolate before and make sure that the symptoms that they are watching out for symptoms before they actually go for the jab. Um, because ultimately the jab is going to be blamed for the COVID, but it's not actually that. Um, I hope that answers your question. Jazakumullah khairan, uh, Dr. Yasmin. It's a pleasure and uh, we thank you for your response. Uh, Dr. Bray, this next one is for you. <clears throat> I actually wanted to ask you initially about um, the third arm that I grew after taking my uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine, but I think that's sorted now, alhamdulillah. So I'll ask you a genuine question rather. Uh, what is vaccine failure? Could you give us some insight into that? Bismillah. Bismillah. Uh, shukran, Lalana. 
Yeah, so so vaccine failure can happen uh, broadly for three different reasons. Uh, the first is uh, the vaccine actually doesn't have an effective uh, candidate or mechanism of action. Uh, the second, and I'm just really simplifying this, the second is that the virus, uh, or what the vaccine is trying to defeat, uh, sometimes it's bacteria, in this case it's the virus, the virus is starting to change. So whatever mechanism or target the vaccine had, the virus has evolved and is now capable of evading what the vaccine had originally intended to act on. The third bucket of factors are actually what's happening in the host. So to what extent does the host um, actually mount the response that the vaccine was intended to, to do, whether that's, you know, so to stimulate a specific immune response. So obviously what we are seeing with the COVID virus, which uh, is not a new phenomenon, for many things, we know that the vaccine, the virus, or the bacteria will evolve over time. Uh, you know, and this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, one of the smartest bacteria that we actually have, uh, tuberculosis, uh, several hundred, several century old uh, bacteria, actually has the ability to evolve over time, is one of the smartest bugs we know of. Um, what COVID is doing is also somewhat uncharacteristic in that the rate at which it is changing is pretty fast. So vaccine failure is when the vaccine is administered and it does not give the host, the human in this situation, the right kind of protection that it was intended for. The, the vaccine failure we're really concerned about is not so much the infection. And I think, you know, uh, alhamdulillah, the panel has done a fantastic job of talking about the fact that many people will actually experience some mild symptoms or may even get mild infection. But that's not really what we're too concerned about. What we really are focused on is the protection, uh, uh, prevention of admission to hospital and really the prevention of death. That's the biggest thing that we, we want to focus on. And I'm, I'm just going to use, I just, while Dr. Jamdullah was talking, you know, he does a fantastic job of just explaining things so simply, alhamdulillah. I thought maybe your viewers and listeners, Molana, will benefit from a very simple graphic. And I thought I'll take the accident uh, issue. I know Dr. Karim also touched on the issue of trauma. Now, if you're traveling at 30 kilometers per hour and you strike a pedestrian, 10%, of those pedestrians die. I'm not gonna go through the whole table. If you travel, traveling at 60 kilometers per hour and you strike a pedestrian, 95% of those pedestrians die, almost 100%. And I'm sure if we go to 80, let's even use 100 kilometers, 100% of the pedestrians will die. So that's a tenfold increase if your kilometers per hour speed moves from 30 to 60 kilometers per hour. We all know those risks um, and, you know, easy to understand that there's a tenfold increase if you move, by, if, if you increase the speed a little bit. If we say for COVID with vaccinations, Dr. Jamdula has spoken about this and depending on which vaccine candidate, but I really just simplified this. Um, we see about 
10 in 1 million will die, those that have taken the vaccine, because the vaccine doesn't work. This is not about side effects, but about the vaccine not necessarily working. But people, 1 million people who get COVID, about 10,000 of them die. So one can appreciate a hundredfold increase in the risk. Um, and I was actually trying to see Molana on the speed chart, it doesn't go so slow. But I imagine this is the equivalent of on the previous slide, traveling at like five kilometers per hour and only 1% of the pedestrians dying. Whereas if you travel at 60 or 70 kilometers, 100% of them die. A hundredfold increase in the risk. So I hope, Molana, that has given uh, the viewers and the listeners a sense of what uh, vaccine failure um, and, and vaccine success uh, really means. That was uh, very insightful and uh, interesting graphic as well. I hope you can, you can share that with us. After the the live session, Bismillah Taala, and I call upon Dr. Jamdula again to tell us about the efficacy of the various uh, vaccines that are available to us. We've got the Pfizer vaccine, we've got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Uh, tell us a bit about the efficacy as far as these vaccines are concerned against, especially the Delta variant of uh, the virus. Bismillah. Correct. Bismillah. Molana, let me focus my, uh, uh, my, uh, my narrative on the efficacy on the Delta variant because we know now that this is the predominant one, if not the only one circulating in South Africa right now, and that's going global and that will probably be the main one across the world in a few weeks' time. So the efficacy that I'm going to talk about are two types of efficacy data that have been generated. Generated through a rigorous peer-reviewed analysis of a population uh, that have uh, received the vaccine and, uh, and had breakthrough infection, which are uh, infection uh, that, are, um, that happen after the vaccination. Uh, and, and obviously, multifold. And as uh, Dr. Zamir said, our focus should be on uh, the prevention of severe disease, uh, hospitalization, or death, right? So for the Pfizer vaccine uh, against the Delta variant, there has been studies that have shown between 90 to 96% protection against severe disease and hospitalization. That's against the Delta variant. Uh, and in terms of the uh, efficacy to prevent infection, that has gone down from around 75% to around 39%, and that's because the virus has changed. Okay. Now, for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, uh, there has... Uh, surprisingly being a, a better efficacy uh, shown uh, against, uh, against, against severe disease uh, of uh, 71%, uh, which is a bit better than the 67% that Dr. Karim mentioned earlier against the beta variant, uh, and 96% protection against death. Uh, and just to finish off in terms of the global efficacy right now for the AstraZeneca, because we are considering getting AstraZeneca for the South African population, uh, it has demonstrated a 93% efficacy against, uh, against, against severe disease and a 60% efficacy against uh, symptomatic disease with the Delta variant. And just one last thing, because I know that is now becoming uh, something that is of interest. 
with uh, a lot of countries considering a third uh, vaccination uh, to uh, prolong the, in the, 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 the protection that we have already uh, had conferred by the vaccination. For the Pfizer vaccine, over a six-month period, the efficacy has only declined from 96% overall to 84%. And in the case of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, I think uh, Professor Glenda Gray came on yesterday to confirm that the efficacy of the vaccine lasts for up to eight months. So whether it's in duration and whether it's in its impact on, 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 on how it's protecting people, we are seeing that it has, it has efficacy it has a very good efficacy. And finally, uh, in the real world data, which is the data that we should be more focused on now, instead of the smaller studies with a smaller group of people, in a real world setting in the US, 99.99% of the people who are dying right now of COVID in the United States are people who are not vaccinated. 98% of the people who are getting infected or still people who have not been vaccinated. And you can see in the states where the vaccination is more slow and with more hesitancy and, and, and anti-vaccine uh, agendas, these are the states that are experiencing like higher rate of infection and higher rate of hospitalization and death. So vaccines work and vaccines still maintain the efficacy over a period of time. Jazakumullah khairan, Dr. Shamim Jamdulay. We now pose a question to Molina Dr. Yusuf Patel, who, as I said before, is both an Islamic scholar or scholar of Islam, as well as a medical doctor and working closely with uh, COVID-19 patients daily. So with regards to not the, the, the medical side of things now, but the Islamic side of things, with regards to the closure of the Masajid, the restrictions that scholars have, that some scholars have been, uh, you know, advocating and supporting, and uh, the practices, are all of these, in your opinion, of course, in conformity with the Sharia? And I know I'm, I'm asking a question that has already been covered on this program. Uh, the only reason for me, you know, re-asking the question is because people might think that, okay, but things have changed since Mawlana Taha said what he said. So uh, is the doctor, is the Mawlana doctor's opinion perhaps different? So that's the one point. And then uh, in addition to that, uh, why does it appear that some ulama are not seeing the measures as valid in terms of the bigger picture? And should Muslims take public practice in the malls, etc., as an example? For you know the the argument that uh, in the malls there's no social distancing. You're going to the shops. You're going. You're taking the taxi. You're going to the bus, etc. Um, so why are you worried about the mosques, right? Uh, what you what do you think about this, Bismillah? So Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Uh, inshallah, I'll try to to integrate uh, the the answer with regards to those uh, three three sub questions. Marana, as you know, um, this has been a very sensitive topic and a very sensitive masala or issue that uh, that we've discussed or uh, that scholars have been discussing over the past uh, 18, uh, 18 months now, with regards to the closure of masajid. Um, as we know, within our community, within South Africa, we've been given that liberty of having freedom of expression, particularly with uh, our religion, uh, compared to other countries around the world. So, therefore, it's understandable why people have become very sensitive um, about this issue. The masajid are essentially the bedrocks of our society and um, something that we have become so accustomed to with regards to praying our salah without any hindrances over the, 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 the many years. 
But however, me saying that, I feel that uh, at the beginning of the emergence of COVID within South Africa during the first wave, and then in the second wave, and then currently now uh, within our third wave, I don't think that it was the wrong decision. And this was always the the, the view of our uh, beloved teacher, Mawlana Taha Karan. Um, and if you remember, and I would advise the audience out there to revisit the various lectures that he gave when this decision or this um, uh, 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 fatwa um, and recommendation, scholarly juristic recommendation came out, you could see on the face of Mawlana Ta that this was a very difficult decision. And he stated that, that this was a discussion that they've had to had uh, where they deliberated with various role players. Uh, many of our panelists uh, currently, the medical doctors were involved in that, and I'm sure that they can attest to the fact uh, with regards to the effort that they and Mawlana Taha and all the others put in with regards to these decisions. But again, what was on their minds, uh, and particularly Mawlana Taha, was looking at the greater picture. And we know from our Sharia and from the Maqasid of our Sharia that Hifthun Nafs, that preservation of life, trumps everything. Obviously, we need to apply the maqasid of the sharia uh, within a certain framework. It's not just a free for all. We cannot just take a, an extreme liberal approach to that. But we know that someone like Manata had that ability to navigate and to apply the maqasid appropriately. And so that was the position uh, that he took. And we know from various other juristic instruments within the sharia, such as sadud dariya, uh, blocking of the means, uh, uh, you know, when certain uh, events occur, then we are allowed to place uh, certain hindrances in way in order to prevent certain um, uh, things or certain effects from taking place. So we have precedence within our Sharia to understand why this was done. Now, the point, the next point that I wanted to focus on was that, yes, without a doubt, if we as Muslims were responsible and if we were people that were willing to follow protocol and instruction from the beginning, then maybe we would have had an argument later on, perhaps in the second wave and within the third wave, to discuss and to relook at this issue. But we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to introspect. Prior to COVID, if we would into, and I won't obviously generalize and say every masjid, but I'll say the majority of masjid, at least that I visited, we saw the lack of order within those masjid. You just have to look at the way that people unfortunately park within the road on the day of Juma. You just need to look at how the shoes lay across the masjid at the back and how people have to move around and place the shoes within empty uh, shoe holders. Because that was the mentality, unfortunately, that we cultivated within ourselves. And I believe if we take that into perspective, if we take that uh, into the equation, then we can be honest enough to assume that at least at the beginning, we would not have been morally responsible. Now, with that being said, I must say, and we have to give credit where it's due, many of the masajid, when uh, the regulations allowed for the mosque uh, to, to open up or pray, uh, places of worship to allow worshippers uh, to congregate and to pray, many of the masajid implemented the protocols uh, effectively, and we have to give credit. And um, my statement and uh, my my message to all the various members of the committees and all the imams in the shiuch is to ensure that these protocols are upheld. I do believe that it's possible to prevent infection within the masajid if people follow protocol. And that means social distancing, 
That means sanitizing and keeping your mask on and obviously bringing your own prayer mat and so forth. And then the masajid, obviously sanitizing uh, the various spaces uh, between the oqat and so forth. And the last uh, sub-question that, that you mentioned, um, I think the issue, unfortunately, is that we're not seeing the bigger picture. Uh, there's an element of self-righteousness. There's an element that we as Muslims are the most important collective group within South Africa. And this is a big problem for us, um, you know, from the messages that came out from other places within the country where ulama, where ulama was saying, and it obviously hurts me to say this, but we have to mention it, where ulama were advising their congregation to still come to the masajid, even if they had COVID, if they were confirmed, and to lie to the congregation if people asked them if they were positive or negative, or to uh, sort of bypass the, the, the screening processes. There's no justification for that within the Sharia. We are a religion of ethics, and we need to consider other people as well. And I think one of the biggest problems that we all suffer from uh, within this day and age um, is that we as human beings focus on claiming rights, but we are not focused on dispensing duties to other people. And I think that's what we as Muslims need to focus on. We have an excellent opportunity now to show the rest of this country and the rest um, of the global community that we are proactive uh, contributors to society and that we care. We are not only concerned about ourselves, but we are concerned about everyone. And at the end of the day, whether we like it or not, we are all in this together. And I think our scholars need to be proactive. And there are many that have been, but there are also many. And I, as I said, it, it hurts me to say this, but the reality is that this exists, that there are many scholars that are still denying COVID. There are many scholars that are taking the precautions um, as, as jokes and actually advising their congregation not to social distance, not to wear a mask, and um, obviously using the member um, of the masajid to further certain agendas. And my response to that is that such scholars should be ashamed of themselves. We have a duty not only to ourselves, but to the rest of our community. Um, we call upon Dr. Salim Parker again. Uh, Doc, we've got a very important question. Uh, I strongly believe that people should not be forced, especially with something uh, you know, like the vaccine, people should have the freedom of choice. But in relation to that, are people informed well enough about a possible adverse effects uh, in order to make responsible and informed decisions before taking the vaccine? Is this done on a on a one-on-one -on -one basis? Are there general recommendations for different uh, categories of, of, of patients with, with similar ailments, uh, perhaps? Uh, what's your take on this? Bismillah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. You know, again, it's the... the concept of time and like Dr. Bray said earlier, she, uh, she tried to spend time with her uh, patients. In private practice, you, we can make time for our patients. Uh, in the uh, state sector, it becomes more difficult. And I think it's just right that people have questions. I mean, I saw a question popping up as to why was the COVID vaccine developed so quickly whilst there's not a vaccine against HIV, for example. And these are valid questions. But the reality is, if, I, if you take the example of malaria, when it affected America and the United States, a lot of research went into it. And once it was eliminated from the, the money for fund, uh, for research, just dried up. Similarly with COVID, initially there wasn't a lot of interest because it was supposed to be a Chinese uh, issue. But when it hit the rest of the world, 
um, and especially in the United States, as well as um, United Kingdom and South Africa and uh, um, China, lots of money poured into it. In fact, more money went into the research aspect of COVID-19 than any other medical issue ever. And what happened in the case of COVID was that um, the, a lot of the um, studies that are done sequentially, in other words, you first do one, and then follow it by something else, and then follow it by something else, could be done in parallel at the same time. So this speeded up the process of, of actually developing the vaccine. Having said that, we have to acknowledge two things. The one is that every person has the right not to take the vaccine, and every person has the right to take the vaccine, I mean, depending entirely on, on their choice. Um, we know that the vaccine is effective. It's been, uh, it's been elucidated upon by, by the few uh, speakers beforehand. We don't know long-term side effects. What we do know about the, uh, the vaccines in general is that most of the side effects takes place within the first few weeks and perhaps maybe in the first few months. So purely from a vaccinology point of view, long-term effects are very, very unlikely because the delivery mechanisms, for example, Johnson & Johnson vaccine uses the adenovirus to deliver the, uh, the part that will induce the uh, immune response. Once that part is in the body, it actually gets destroyed and, uh, and the body then builds up the immune response as if it has encountered the real virus itself. So we don't anticipate long-term vaccines, but Allah alam, we, we, we can't for 100% say that nothing will happen in two years' time, but it's highly unlikely. Also, just on that uh, particular point, you know, if people talk of it as being a conspiracy against uh, by the Americans and the Israelis against the Africans, well, who's taken the most vaccines? The Americans. Which population has the highest rate of vaccination? Is the uh, Israelis. So clearly, if people are going to die in two years' time, it's going to be those two uh, population groups. We do take enough time, I think, to explain to our patients but, but we, are, we can only use what is evidence-based. And the evidence uh, that we use is what in science is called the, the best uh, scientific principles. And to use a, a, a Islamic analogy, if something is in Quran, that is fact. We, you don't dispute it. If something is in the Hadith, um, there are different levels of interpretation. But if it's Sai, no one will uh, dispute it. If it's an opinion of someone... No, then there's, then you you try to figure out is this person a very wise person to follow. When it comes to medical uh, issues, if one person says that he's had two uh, people who were vaccinated who had clots in their legs, that is one person's observation. It is the lowest form of what we call evidence in, in science. The best one is what we call double-blind uh, controlled trials, which is where the person who receives, for example, a vaccine, is not the way that they're receiving a vaccine or a placebo. A placebo is basically water or uh, and it doesn't contain any active ingredient. And the person administering it also doesn't know what they're actually injecting in. Then only after taking all the data uh, can you do the comparison. So that is what we call the rock, uh, the, the rock basis of, uh, of uh, medical investigations. And a lot of the studies are being done at the moment. So we can use those type of evidence solid in its uh, science foundation but it doesn't exclude the fact that a small percentage and like i've mentioned 
50 out of the 300,000 people took the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine uh, amongst healthcare workers in South Africa in the first few months in South Africa. 50 had serious side, um, side effects. Compare that to the 10,000 per million who will die contracting the disease. So this is the way we put the evidence over to the uh, person. If they have questions on issues that they saw on social media, we try to answer, address it and answer it. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's a uh, issue that we've never heard about. A, initially, I never heard about this chip that gets transplanted. You never heard about the magnetic uh, um, impulse that people generate when they have the vaccine, vaccine injected into them. And sometimes you, it feels ludicrous to have and try to answer that, but we have to take into account that it's a genuine concern for the uh, person to be vaccinated. So we do take all the questions seriously. We can't, uh, we, we never force anyone to take it. It's a constitutional right not to take the vaccine. But I think with giving good information, giving the risk-benefit ratios and benefit that the patient can have against death and hospitalization, the best we can do is to try and inform the person. And we don't, and most of our patients will not immediately say, I'm going right now to take the vaccine. They will ponder about what we said. They probably go back to the um, famous Dr. Google and Dr. Internet and then make up their minds. But our, from our practice point of view, the vast majority of our patients did take our advice to get the vaccine. Jazakumullah khairan. Uh, doc, tell me that, that basket of chocolate that uh, I saw at your place, have you received that as a result of sending people for the vaccines? Be honest, Doc. Um, no, they, it was actually given as a uh, thank you for treating them well when they had the disease. None of them took the vaccine. Um, they had a good uh, choice of chocolates. <laughs> I'm <laughs> and I'm sure you'll enjoy all of them uh, alone, Doc. It's enjoyed this award. Panelists and viewers and listeners, uh, we have reached one hour, 30 minutes into the program, and I'm going to take one more question. This question is for Dr. Sadiq Karim, and I think it's a very important one. Then I will allow each panelist to give the closing remarks or address any pertinent issue that they wanted to, or they felt it was not covered uh, correctly. Um, as for the, the questioners who have posted good questions and comments on the, well, the good among them on Facebook and YouTube, um, as I said right at the beginning, and you could easily go back to the, the beginning of this program, I laid out uh, certain formats uh, or rather regulations about commenting questions as well as what we will actually uh, do and cover in the program. And, and we've stuck to that, alhamdulillah. Um, but that said, I will ask Dr. Salim Parker if he is comfortable with sharing his email address and questions could then be forwarded to him and he will uh, either answer them himself or forward it to the panelist he feels is uh, most qualified to answer that particular question, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, all of the questions, all of the the, the honest and, and real questions, you know, will be taken seriously and of course, uh, responses will be given to that uh, Dr. Sadiq, how does the health department actually uh, investigate adverse claims, uh, sorry, adverse effect claims? And in addition to, to this particular claim, uh, everything related to people's concerns, for example, death certifications that have been issued as COVID deaths, but, uh, you know, they were not COVID deaths, um, fatalities that, that are allegedly connected to the vaccines, etc. What are the health department's 
methods as far as this is concerned, because people claim that there is no protocol in place for this. We have seen from Dr. Shamim that there are in fact apps available that people could uh, utilize and report adverse effects. Uh, but from your side, uh, what insight can give us on this matter? Bismillah. No, shukran, Mawla. So this is a very important question in the health department. We actually get quite a lot of queries about this because people, as we can see in the chat, people are very concerned about side effects. So people are thinking, are we hiding things? Are we not disclosing facts? Are we are we not sharing the information with public, with the general public? And and I can say all of that is not true. We have a very very clear protocol in place for how we record. Um, adverse events, we call it adverse events following immunizations. There's a very clear protocol in place um, in the province and in fact around the country as well. So when people have adverse events following immunization and they report to their public or private doctor, there are case forms that have to be filled in um, and these forms are then collated and collected by our provincial office. We have a special office that actually does this. And people can obviously record this on the MedSafety app. It's also recorded on EVDS, for example. Um, and then we present those stats and data to the National Department of Health. So it's actually not true that we are hiding anything. We are dis we disclose all of, all of these, these facts. And in the last report that I, that I just checked, which was uh, up to the 23rd of July in the Western Cape, we had 484 adverse events that have been reported thus far to date. 84% of those were in fact minor and 12% of those were a little bit more severe with generalized body aches, a little bit of nausea, some vomiting, a little bit of diarrhea. Um, and those have, have, have in fact been recorded. Most common side effects generally are headaches, fever, and a little bit of pain at the, at the injection site. So it's quite, uh, so we actually have a very clear protocol in place for that. We also have a very clear protocol about deaths and death certificates certificates and what gets recorded on a death certificate because that is a very important legal document um, and doctors are besides the oath that we take in terms of declaration of information there's a very clear legislative process for what is recorded as a death and how COVID deaths are recorded because that is another question that we still get after 20 months in this pandemic as uh, uh, our colleague Aspinet had mentioned we still get questions like that about what and about what are the deaths and we also have a very clear protocol in place for that Shukran. And there I have shared uh, Dr. Salim Parker's uh, email address please don't send him hate mail he does love fan mail and he does love chocolate, <laughs> even though you're not going to be able to send that via email. Inshallah, I'll now ask the panelists to give the, the final remarks and perhaps address any of the issues that they felt uh, needed to be addressed before we can conclude. And I'll start off with uh, Dr. Parker. Bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Just today, again, there's been about 3,800 cases in the Western Cape. So those 3,000 odd people can still infect more people. Um, it is not, uh, we haven't reached the peak of our pandemic, the third wave year yet. So people have to be careful, obey the protocols. Why do we um, promote vaccination? We're still heading for a fourth wave. Some countries are already in the fourth wave. So if we have a number of people vaccinated, I mean, what the other panelists clearly elucidated to was that the vaccines prevents hospitalization prevents deaths. So those beds that would have been uh, occupied during the fourth wave were by people who are, who are now vaccinated will be empty 
it will be clear to do other life-saving procedures. There are people currently who are, who've had the um, cataract uh, operations delayed for two years because of this. There are people who are waiting for hip replacements, but those beds are taken up by the COVID um, uh, patients who need it more acutely. So when those beds are free in the fourth wave, um, if it occurs and it's projected to occur towards the end of the year, because people are vaccinated, you will be actually doing a favor to someone else by freeing up vital resources, which will probably be taken up by um, people, if people are not vaccinated, by people needing oxygen and critical care. So I think that is our duty as well to the rest of the population. Shukran. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi Dr. Park. Uh, Dr. Yasmin, it's here from you. Bismillah. Bismillah. So basically, my take-up message is, is that um, do we even remember what normal life is like um, uh, where there were no lockdowns and there were no uh, isolation and quarantine and travel and going to Makkah and going for Hajj and things like that? At the moment, everything has been on a huge pause. And this is one way of us actually thinking that we could possibly go back to some sort of normality. Um, we need to try and ultimately look beyond all of the, the issues, um, you know, with regards to the, the fears, fear mongering and all of that. And to think that, you know, we want a better a future for our kids. We want them to be able to interact and go to parties and go to school without this fear hanging over our heads. We want to be able to travel and we want to go for Hajj and Umrah and to all other places uh, in the world, inshallah. And this is one way that we have with our current knowledge and capacity to actually think and have hope in a going back to some sort of normality, inshallah. We pray, we make dua, and we, we really ask Allah to grant us ease in this difficult time and to relieve us of this pandemic. We understand ultimately it is Allah that can take this away from us, but we can implore the means that we have, um, and the vaccine is just one of those means, inshallah. Shukran so much. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Yasmin. Dr. Shamim, from your side. Yes, uh, so I, I, I would like to end up by uh, appealing to people to listen to reason, to listen especially to people who know their subject, people who are in the field, people who have the right information. It is becoming even more alarming, the number of misinformation, the number of conspiracies, and and, and the impact that this is having on people who are genuinely hesitant to take the vaccine because they, they are worried. Uh, and and, and, and uh, there is like a fragment of the medical community as well. Uh, you know, being a doctor doesn't mean that you know everything about COVID. None of us here, even on this panel, know everything about COVID. COVID is something that is relatively new. So there is no real expert on COVID. But, but there are people who are actively involved in understanding it that have the real information uh, and 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 if you are in the medical fraternity and, and community and you are not sure about you know certain things whether it's regarding vaccine whether it's regarding treatment whether it's regarding anything that has to do with this epidemic and that you need to share with your patient and people in the community you can approach uh, you know people people who have the knowledge there is the Islamic Medical Association of South Africa, for example, uh, that has put together a good group of doctors 
who are in the field right now and fighting this epidemic who have a lot of this information. So please make sure that you are following like trustworthy sources. And, and, and for people who are doing all this spreading of, of misinformation and conspiracies, please understand the impact that you are having. And, and it's, it's, it's already manifesting itself across those three waves that we've experienced. Shukran for the opportunity. Uh, shall we have Dr. Zamir? Shukran, Maulana. Maulana, there was something that happened to me today. Um, as you know, uh, my mild addiction to coffee. I was standing <laughs> for a cup of coffee. And what happened really disturbed me, Maulana. There was a young couple in front of me. The lady was pregnant with her first child. And in front of her was an elderly lady who was not wearing a mask. So the young lady said to her, ma'am, you, you don't have a mask on and we're very close to your mind. The lady turned around and said to her, mind what? I'm not sick. I refuse to wear this mask. And I could see the fear that this struck in the pregnant mother that was standing behind this lady who clearly had no regard for that mother's safety and that baby's safety and refused, despite other people telling her, refused to put on a mask. And the reason it disturbed me is because this is not about you. If you don't want to take your high blood tablets, and you say, it's okay. If I have a stroke and I die, it's my thing. That's okay. That's up to you. With COVID, it's not about you. It's about the people around you. It's about the people you love. Or it's about the people that you will infect, whether or not you plan to. And if you, as a parent, discourage your children from taking the precautions, or you as a leader discourage your congregation or your community from practicing the safety measures, then you have to live with those consequences. If people become infected, people get hospitalized and people die, think about what those consequences are. Because Molina, I can assure you that the guilt that is going to live with us for decades to come is not going to be easy. And I'm not using this as a threat, but I can assure you that for all of us on this panel and every single healthcare worker in this country, it has been the hardest 20 months ever. This is not easy for us. But if you really want to make a difference, for one minute, think that it's not about you. It's about the people around you. It's about your loved ones. So try and take all the safety measures you possibly can. Shukran. Afwan, Jazakumullah khairan. Dr. Sadiq, your closing remarks, Bismillah. 
Uh, shukran Maulana, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So, I mean, we didn't get to talk about quite a number of issues like travel, mm. Hajj and Umrah. You know, we'll perhaps there's a topic for another another show, inshallah. Uh, we are working, by the way, with our colleagues from Department of International Relations on a COVID vaccine, what they call nominally as a passport. We didn't get to talk about the weekend sites. There was a question around that. It is published on the Department of Health website, by the way. But I think just to follow on from what Dr. Bray was saying, I mean, you know, I, I mean, we, because I have to, as head of operations, obviously I've got to make sure that I have visibility of the health platform site literally constantly, all the time. Um, and, and we have, and I'm in touch with the colleagues who are, who are in the hospitals and actually seeing patients. And I, I can tell you the plea from, from all of us as, as healthcare workers is something similar to what Dr. Bray was saying. The plea from us is that please get vaccinated because this is the only way that we are really going to truly avert a fourth wave. It is such an important issue that we cannot stress enough how important this actually is. I mean, we can tell you, and, uh, you know, uh, colleagues, will, any one of the medical practitioners will be able to say that the number of people admitted to hospital has been far lower in a sense from this wave than it has been previously. Now, we, we had capacity issues also, you know, in the in the past, but but it is such an important issue. In our healthcare workers alone, I can show you, there's enough graphs that one can show in terms of the number of people of our healthcare workers who are who are have been infected in the second wave versus those infected um, in the third wave. You know, one of our colleagues, um, um, Shade, she keeps a record on daily basis or the daily record of all of these. So our plea for as healthcare workers is please to get vaccinated because that is the only way we're really going to truly, truly avert the fourth wave. Shukran uh, and so assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakumullah khairan. Malina, Dr. Yusuf Patel, bismillah. Uh, Malana, one of the, the points that I wanted to discuss, uh, and I'll close with this, inshallah, was the issue of double standards that we're seeing within uh, the community, particularly with all these anti or all these lobby groups. Firstly, with those uh, that still deny COVID and with those who obviously are disseminating false information with regards to uh, the vaccines. Now, what I want the public to do and the audience out there is to take the opportunity to question these individuals. These individuals, uh, many of them from last year, started off, and this is how they shift the goalpost, that they started off with the view um, or the theory that COVID does not exist. So they denied COVID outright. Then after evidence, practical evidence came out and many doctors and many healthcare workers uh, uh, rebutted those claims with clinical uh, observation and experience, they shifted the goalposts by saying, no, this, that's are exaggerated. Then after the first and second wave, when family members of people within the community were starting to be affected, many people passed away, those claims were no longer tenable. Right? And so the goalposts shifted now to the issue of the vaccine because it's a very easy target that people can play around with. And we see even within those arguments, people focus on different things. And we've seen it tonight with all the questions, whether those are trolls or whether those are people, you know, just trying to, to cause frustration, whatever it may be. The point that I'm making here is that we need to make sure that these individuals are held accountable for the statements that they've made in the public space. Right? People, if... 
people were incorrect with the initial observations and they stated this publicly, they need to retract. And this we find within our own deen, as we discussed earlier today, we find that Imam Hassan al-Ashari, who is one of the founders of the theological schools, he followed a certain sect within Islam, the Mu'tazilites, for many years. He was trained within that school until he saw the truth. And when he saw the truth, he went onto the member and he exclaimed or he proclaimed to the people that followed him initially, his students and the general public, that what I preached to you in the past was incorrect. The truth has been made evident to me. And I assure you that I will now focus or I will now uh, include myself in what we consider to be Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. And this is a precedent that we need to ensure that people that are in the public space follow. Because what's happening is that people are making statements. And, you know, there are many neutral individuals who unfortunately are not really clued up with what's happening around them. And many a times they are forced for whatever reason to follow these specific narratives. But the people that are making these claims do not understand the consequences. Dr. Bray mentioned that earlier. And the point that I want to end on here is that just as we have this concept within Sharia, with regards to Sadaq Jariya, where there's this perpetuation of goodness uh, in various forms, we should look at the opposite of that as well. When we commit a harm or we cause people to incur a harm because of us and that manifests within certain circles or it uh, progresses to other generations, even when we leave this dunya, the effects and consequences of that will still come back to us in our grave and in the year after. And we need to be very careful that we understand what we are saying and that we take accountable. I can assure you that many people that belong to these groups, I know them personally, right? And I know many of them had COVID and many of them were severely ill. Some of them have passed on. The sad reality is that we as Muslims that belong to these groups cannot be honest with our friends, with our families and with the general public. And when honesty is not being presented, then for me, that is a red flag to never support and to believe such a narrative and to belong to such a group. So I share that with the audience out there. Look at these red flags of dishonesty and individuals not willing to retract the mistakes or the errors that they presented publicly. Subhanallah, Jazakumullah khairan. Um, in conclusion, I saw, yes, uh, Dr. Zamir, I saw that there were a few a few questions about are all the panelists vaccinated? And I was thinking the entire time, I'm thinking, why? Why are they asking this? Like, wouldn't a group of people saying, you know, what you uh, honored panelists say, wouldn't they be vaccinated? And then it occurred to me that the type of thoughts that, uh, you know, unfortunately are, are prevalent is still that I don't trust you. I don't care that you're Muslim, that you say your shahada, that you make salah, that you have kids, that you have parents, uh, that you have my best interest in a heart, uh, my best interest in heart. I think that you are lying. So I, it, it, it behooves me why this is the case, but it is the case. I'm vaccinated, alhamdulillah. Um, and I'm and and so is Dr. Salim. I saw Dr. Zamir showing his card there. Everyone, uh, how about uh, Molina, Dr. Yusuf? No, definitely. definitely. <laughs> alhamdulillah. So um, that's that. Uh, I would like to conclude by saying that, look, this is uh, a very important point. We've held up for now almost two hours, over 730 people. I think we went up to 900 people watching live. Um, this tells me that people have a genuine concern about uh, these issues and these questions. And there are 
uh, more questions that we did not yet reach. And I'm sure there are more questions out there. I've seen them in the comments. And I said right at the beginning, we won't be able to cover them all. Um, but that said, let this not be the reason for taking people out of the fold of Islam, for breaking up families, for ridiculing one another, for calling people bad names, right? Make your decision, make it responsibly, make it inform it, uh, informatively. In other words, be informed when you make your decision. Pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for istikhara, you know, uh, ask Allah for goodness and take the encouragement uh, that you heard from the panelists uh, and myself also, take that encouragement uh, in light of that. Um, there's no there's no haram choice here. You know, there's no, I don't believe that there's a haram choice here. Uh, Wallahu subhanahu wa ta'ala a'lam. But there's a choice based on information and there's a choice based on uh, hearsay and just what, uh, you know, what's floating around there. Uh, but I think it's, it's, so, it's so much more important that we understand the sacred nature of human lives and that the Prophet ﷺ taught us that you Muslims to one another, you are sacred and your blood is sacred and your wealth is sacred and your, your honor is sacred among one another. And in light of that, uh, let us not make each other out to be liars and to be deceivers and to be uh, cheaters and so on. I think uh, we deserve better thoughts about one another as the Muslim Ummah of Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And again, I'm going to make dua and ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant shifa to all of those who are ill of any illness, disease, ailment, pain, etc. For all of those who had passed on, may Allah ta'ala grant them the highest places in Jannah, place mm -hmm. sabr in the hearts of the bereaved, and that even you are Anyone and everyone who happens to be going through a difficulty of any kind, may Allah Ta'ala alleviate uh, your pain, your suffering, and any loneliness and depression that you may be feeling. May Allah Ta'ala help you and be there with you and for you. And for our frontline workers, our doctors, our medical workers, etc., whose lives are uh, dedicated to serving Allah by serving His creation and by being there for the healing of others with good intentions and good hearts and good souls, wanting to see people better wanting to see people healthy. Uh, I, I make dua for you that Allah protect you, preserve you, grant you all the khair, the barakah, the afia, and uh, may Allah grant you the, the strength, the tawfiq, uh, and, and everything that you need to do what you do so well. And thank you on behalf of the Ummah of Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. And until next time, wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammad subhanallah wa bihamdi, subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik, nashadu an la ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka, to all the panelists and all the viewers and all the listeners on all of our platforms, including uh, the Voice of the Cape. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum